All right, so we are here for the uh, the next episode of the Combat Subs podcast, and sitting over this way is David Zwoboda, and I probably mispronounced his name, but it's okay. I've mispronounced many other names before. Uh, so a couple of things to, to kind of know about him. So he has his bachelor's degree in health and exercise science from the College of New Jersey, and then he's got a master's in clinical anatomy and a doctorate in physical therapy from the University of Delaware. So obviously he knows a ton about anatomy and how the body works and helping athletes and that sort of thing. But the cool part is he does jujitsu. So he can apply all of that. How does your body bend or not bend to choking people out or trying to, you know, fold their shoulders in ways that they shouldn't go. So thanks for joining us, Dave. I appreciate it. Yeah, man. Thanks a lot for having me on. I appreciate it. Yeah, for sure. All right. So Another kind of key thing and a reason I wanted to have him on, aside from his credentials and, like I said, all the stuff he knows about the human body, is he has a practice and his physical therapy practice is strictly focused on grapplers. So wrestlers, sambo guys, you know, jujitsu guys, that sort of thing. And his vision for it is he basically wants those of us that grapple not to be like beat up old dudes, right? When you see <laughs> that... Uh, when you see that meme where it's like, you know, jujitsu is hard and it's a 26 year old guy, but he like looks like an old man. He yeah. doesn't want us to be like that. So he's going to help us get rid of the lower back pain and all that fun stuff. That's the idea, man. Awesome. So I mentioned you're a physical therapist, right? And you have all of the training that we talked about and you do jujitsu. Mm -hmm. Have you come up with any special moves because you know <laughs> how the body moves or doesn't move? Uh, like a cool <laughs> submission that you've named after yourself or something like that? <laughs> Not yet. Um, I feel like you, uh, people talk about like at black belt level, you get real creative and you start coming up with your own stuff. So I think I've got a ways to go until then. Mostly it's just like watching someone put a twister on and just me cringing, knowing how much <laughs> that sucks. It's, it's a lot of that. Just me like going, oh man, shouldn't be doing that. <laughs> so like, so when you see somebody, you know, getting mangled like this you can <laughs> yes. do you like literally see like all right so his neck is doing this and this is <laughs> happening to his back and his hips are going like yeah yeah it's um it's a crazy thing so in pt school we start with uh, cadaver lab so we start by dissecting human bodies right so anytime that i'm doing something you can visualize the actual anatomy because you know i've seen it i've seen the actual muscles and bones and nerves and everything so so yeah every time there's a submission i'm just like visualizing what is breaking in that joint and it's it's not fun especially like watching mma i have a hard time just watching dudes just get hit in the head repeatedly because uh, i've treated so many patients with brain injuries and concussions and things like that so anytime a dude like looks like he's already knocked out and someone just hits him again i'm just cringing i mean since you brought it up so i know you know when you get punched you know the brain is only moving like this much in your skull but that mm -hmm. much can be a lot when it's banging into something Mm -hmm. what actually happens like from a science perspective yeah yeah so that's that's a good point it's not even just so much that your brain moves but it's the um it's the rotational component right so if you get hit with like a hook right and your head snaps to the side your your head is being accelerated on an angle really really fast from the force of that punch so there's this whiplash effect in your brain so not only is it smacking against one side of your head, rebounding and smacking the other side, but there's this torsional force. It's, uh, I think the term is axonal shearing. So basically the axons, which are um, like the actual nerve cells in your brain, okay. they're, getting, they're getting pulled apart because that force is being applied so quickly. 
So it's, it's not just from your brain smacking your skull, but it's from that rotational force, just literally tearing the, the nerves apart. It's no good. All right. So short answer is don't get punched in the head. <laughs> yes. That is the short answer is train jujitsu. Don't train striking sports. <laughs> Got it. Okay. Perfect. All right. So I know you went to like the number one PT school, like in the country. Yeah. So how does a guy with your credentials who went to that kind of school, how do you end up choking people out on the weekend? <laughs> Dude, I feel like so many people my age, it just started from listening to the Joe Rogan podcast, man. You listen to Joe Rogan long enough and you're going to want to try some sort of martial arts. And uh, one of my buddies in grad school was big into Rogan and he, he trained some jujitsu and some Muay Thai and he just talked about it enough that I had to try it. And uh, so, you know, show up to class day one, you get choked out and you just freaking fall in love with it. You're like, damn, I want to come back here again tomorrow. So were you the typical like spazzy white belt bouncing oh, yeah. around? Okay. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. hundred percent. Did you, I, uh, how long did it take you before you like started to think about it? Like, Hey, if I flail my arms like this, some guy is going to grab it and stretch it out this way. Yeah, there was, um, I remember the exact day I rolled with this one guy and I got triangle choked probably 30 times inside of like four minutes. And I, I asked him afterwards, I was like, dude, what am I doing wrong? And he just told me, you know, the average advice of like, slow down your breathing, stop just flailing all over the place and actually think about where you're putting your arms. So I like to think I caught on pretty quickly because I have that background in biomechanics and human movement, you know, um, I'm sure I still spaz a little bit. <laughs> still technically, I'm still I'm still a white belt, so I throw the occasional knee to my training partner's chin. You know, can't be helped. It happens. It's okay. <laughs> <laughs> All right, so I have a question for you. So I'm mm -hmm. part of the reason I wanted to bring you on is most of us that do jujitsu have to deal with let's not call them injuries, but some aches and pains. Aches, and pains, or hurts. You're, you're sore when you wake up. Mm -hmm. What are some of the most common things that you see from guys that do jujitsu? Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think, I think a certain degree of that is going to be normal because at the end of the day, we are fighting people every day, right? So it's kind of to be expected to have a little bit of something going on, but a really common thing that I see are back injuries, neck injuries, and shoulder injuries, probably the most. Um, and, and it comes down to pretty much how you train outside of jujitsu versus what your body's actually doing on the mats. So I talk about this a lot. There's always a mismatch between what people do in the gym versus what your body needs to do on the jujitsu mats. So it's like people are exposing their bodies to these forces in these positions that they're not training for. They're not training their body to be able to handle. So um, like a super common pattern that I see probably in like 80% of my clients right now it's like you ask someone to bend forward to touch their toes and they get zero movement out of their lumbar spine. So they're not able to actually bend forward with their back at all. And if you think about how people train in the gym, you look at deadlifts, they're, they're trying to keep their back as stiff as possible versus you look at someone in closed guard getting stacked. What's their body doing? It's trying to flex at their low back. But if they've never trained that ability before, now they've got a 200 pound opponent forcing their body to do it. That's, that's where those injuries come in. And that's like not an acute thing. You know, it's not like someone's going to come out of training one day and be like, oh, I really hurt my back today. But that's how those things add up over time. Sure. And I think most people that do jujitsu can, they understand low back pain. That's a pretty common mm -hmm. thing. <laughs> yes. So how do you fix it? <laughs> so it's, it's like I said, there's, um, there's, you know, the demand that you're putting on your body in, in, on the mats 
versus what your body's capable of on its own. So it's just training up that ability, basically getting people to learn how to move their spine better, building better control over it. So you've, you've heard the phrase like, uh, jujitsu is the art of folding laundry with someone else still in it. (laughs) So it's like your opponent's trying to put your body in these compromised positions. So it's a matter of putting your own body there, learning how to get in and out of those compromised positions with strength. Um, so that now when someone else does it to you, it's not, it's not the first time your body's exposed to it. You know, your brain says, okay, I know what this position is. I'm safe here. I can breathe here and I can get out of that position. All right, so that sort of covers basically kind of how do you prevent it, right? If you mm-hmm. sort of do those exercises ahead of time or those stretches mm-hmm. ahead of time. Exactly. Let's say you have some guy that every time he wakes up, he's like, oh, and it takes him five minutes to get out of bed and, uh-huh. and those kind of common things. What do you do about it once you're kind of already there? Yeah, yeah. So we can get more into this analogy that I use. Um, have you ever heard the term load management? Do you know what that means? sort of, but I'm sure you have a much okay. more scientific definition. <laughs> All right. So, so basically it's, it's the understanding of how much stress are we putting on your body? Like what things contribute to that stress and how can we manage it? So the average athlete, you know, we're all freaking crazy. If I tell you not to go to jujitsu, you're still going to go. So I, I understand that. So <laughs> if someone has some acute injury, we need to basically reduce the workload on their body. And so I, I might suggest that you maybe don't roll for a week or you, you know, stick to drilling, but we got to look at what other factors in your life can we modify so that you can train jujitsu without all of that pain, you know? So it's like, can we, can we cut out other things in your life? Can we get you sleeping better? Can we get you on a better like movement routine? Um, Cause I don't want to tell people to just stop jujitsu, but we got to find other, other levers to pull to make that change in their life, you know? Sure. All right. So, you know, as I mentioned, you have a, a practice that's literally built on helping grapplers and that sort of thing. It's called ground mm-hmm. game physio, right? Yep. That's correct. All right. So what kind of training do you do with your athletes to either help repair injuries or help prevent it? Yeah. So it varies from, from person to person, right? So a little bit of it is individualized, but the first thing is to put out the fires. So if you come to me and you have back pain, obviously that's where we're going to start. Or start with looking at how your back moves, get it moving better, get it, get all of the mobility things cleaned up. From there, it's really building a strong base with like foundational strength training stuff. So I have a strength coach mentor. His name is uh, Dr. Jason Park. He's with Team Cool Heart Training. Like they train um, Brian Ortega and Anderson Silva. So these guys know what they're doing. So I, I take my clients through the same strength training movements that these pros use. And uh, it's interesting because if you look at most of the big name athletes on Instagram, they're always doing these cool, flashy looking exercises on BOSU balls and shit like that. But really what people need is just the, the, the fundamentals. Um, so I talk about like building a pyramid, right? So you want to build a really wide, strong foundation so we can stack your athletic skills on top of that. So that's what it comes down to most of the time is just very basic strength training things. Um, but most people skip over that because they want to get to the flashy stuff. They want to load up the bar with weight. They don't want to sit in an isometric lunge for, you know, five reps of one minute holds, but that's really what your body needs to be able to do. You made a face at those. at the I, isometrics. Know, I, I, was, I was thinking about doing that. Like, damn, that sounds terrible. But again, man, you think about what is jujitsu, right? It's, it's a grind. You're grinding against your opponent. You're squeezing, you're exerting this force. And then all of a sudden there's a scramble and you need to explode. People only want to train the explosive part. They don't want to train that grind 
where you're just pushing and pushing and pushing for like a minute straight. And that's what we need to be able to do. Okay, got it. And so I know you kind of already mentioned it, but you're also, you have like a certification in strength and conditioning also too, right? Yeah, so I'm a certified strength and conditioning specialist through the National Strength and Conditioning Association. It's too many acronyms, man. Yeah. And right. then um, <laughs> I'm also functional range conditioning certified. So that the uh, FRC guys on Instagram are doing all kinds of cool exercises too. All right. So you mentioned like an isometric hold on a lunge for like one minute. What are some of the other jujitsu grappling focus kinds of things that we should be doing for? Gotcha. Ourselves? So like, like what are the things that people listening to this should be trying out? For sure. Yeah. Yeah. I'm a big fan of kettlebell training. So with the kettlebell, you really get to create like a very strong foundation for your shoulder blade to be able to push and pull from. So if you think about what we do on the mats, right? Like if you're trying to escape a position, you're going to create a frame with your arms and then basically move your body around your opponent. So using the kettlebell allows you to learn how to create that stable foundation for your shoulder blade to then move you the kettlebell or move your body around the kettlebell. So it mimics that demand of jujitsu a little bit better. And then in terms of the lower body, we want to be able to actually move your spine. So like I talked about before, if you bend forward and all the movement comes from your hamstring and not actually from your low back, that's, gonna, that's a problem. So we want to learn how to segment your spine, basically like how to move each, each, uh, each vertebrae as a unit um, so you can actually get all of the movement that you should get out of your body. Um, and then I'd say another big thing is working in the transverse plane. So that means moving side to side. If you look at the movements in the gym, squats and deadlifts, they're all in a straight line. But jujitsu, you know, we're moving in three, three dimensions. So just do some sort, of, some sort of variation in your training that allows you to get out of that straight forward or straight up and down kind of plane. And is the plane more of a kind of a twist motion or is it like literally like this side to that side kind of movement that we should be doing or both? Uh, both, both. So the transverse plane refers to that twisting and anyone who's a striker, that's important, right? That's where all striking comes from is that rotation. So that component is still there in jujitsu. I'd say it's not, it's not as pronounced. You know, that kind of comes out in sweeps and things like that where you're twisting your body a little bit. But the, the frontal plane, meaning moving side to side, so like a lateral lunge, stuff like that's going to be very important. And all, all the lateral movements are always kind of, uh, kind of avoided in the gym, but definitely things that we need to be able to do to move side to side against our opponent. Okay, yeah, no, that, that totally makes sense. All right, so I'm going to bring up a topic, and it's scientific, and I know like the first grade level of scientific, so we're going to have to <laughs> okay. let you explain. Okay. Um, so I know that you talk a lot about you know sympathetic versus, versus parasympathetic systems and yep. kind of toggling between the two of them. Yep. Above the first grade level, tell us what the two systems are, mm -hmm. and then we'll kind of jump into, all right, how do you use them and, and all that kind of stuff. Yeah. So yeah, I went down a rabbit hole on my Instagram making posts about this last week. Um, so your, your body has the nervous system, right? Which refers to your brain and your, sp your spinal cord. So that's what's in charge. Of, that's, that's running the show. We've got two branches of that. One is the somatic system and one is the autonomic system. So the somatic system refers to anything volitional. So I'm moving my hands around, I'm speaking. That's the somatic side. The autonomic side is everything that you don't have control over. So that is, you know, the way that your organs function, that is your stomach digesting things. It's everything kind of behind the scenes. So that, the autonomic system, is divided into two sub-branches, sympathetic and parasympathetic. 
the sympathetic system. So anything that increases sympathetic tone is anything that ramps your body up. So that's getting your adrenaline flowing. That's the fight or flight response. That's like, you know, our ancestors saw a snake and they freaked out. That's the sympathetic system. The parasympathetic system refers to everything that kind of calms your body down. So, you know, when, when you're falling asleep, the parasympathetic system takes over. If you're doing slow diaphragmatic breathing, you're getting your parasympathetic system uh, to, to, to kind of kick on. And so it's not, it's not that we want to live in one versus the other. We need both to survive. We need the, the sympathetic system to jack our body up, to get it ready for exercise, to get it ready to fight a predator or go hunting if we're talking in evolutionary terms. But you can't live there. It's not sustainable to be in the sympathetic state 24 seven. That's how you get burnout. That's how you get super stressed. And, and that's, that's how you, that, that leads to injury if you're constantly in that state because your body's just constantly stressed. So that's when I talk about toggling back and forth is a really good athlete can ramp his body up when he needs to, and then he can calm down and relax and recover from that as soon as it's over. Does that make sense so far? Yeah. All right. So my, my first grade definitions is basically, right. So sympathetic is getting after it and parasympathetic yes. is rest recovery, yep. something like that. Yep. All right. Absolutely. All right. So how do we get better at each? Mm -hmm. if that's possible. Mm -hmm. So there's kind of a good way to do it and like a, a cheap, give me a pill, the American version of doing it. <laughs> all right. So let's, let's talk about the, all right, what's the best way to do it? Okay. So the best way to do it would be um, things like breathing practices. Have you ever heard of like Wim Hof breathing and, and things like that? Mm -hmm. So the breath is a really interesting thing because I talked about the autonomic and the somatic systems. The breath is actually controlled by both. Because, you know, when you're asleep, you're still breathing. You're not thinking about it, but you can force yourself to take a breath in and out. So you can almost use that to, um, to hijack your autonomic system. So I can force myself to breathe in one pattern that's going to help me calm down by doing diaphragm breathing, or I can force myself to breathe in another pattern that's going to ramp my body up. And that's like the gymnastica natural stuff that you see the, the old school Gracie's doing with like the dragon fire breathing. I'm not an expert in that stuff, but um, so there's one way is, is using the breath as like a lever to pull to get into one state or the other. Um, another thing is just mental exercises, right? So if you're going to go into a competition, you can be, you know, repeating affirmations in your head, things like that to kind of jack your body up. Hopefully just being in that competition environment is going to jack your body up anyway. Um, there's some supplements you can take, like I'm sipping some, uh, some amino acids and BCAAs right now. So things like pre-workouts should help you get into that sympathetic state. Same with caffeine. Um, and then if we're talking the parasympathetic state, I'm, I'm very big on sleep habits and creating good sleep hygiene. So like every night before bed, I read a book and I drink some herbal tea because I'm an old man on the inside. <laughs> but, but anything like that, that helps your brain kind of unwind and shut off from the day, that's going to help you get the parasympathetic system going. All right. So we were, we were sort of talking about parasympathetic and I think most people ignore that part of it, right? Mm, yes. We're all about the, let's get after it. Let's go hard, yep. that yep. sort of thing. But that yep. the other side is equally as important. So yep. how important is recovery? Oh, dude, it is the most important thing. So this is a, a really interesting topic because you're right. People talk about getting after it. They talk about going really hard with interval training. They talk about lifting heavy weight, 
but your workouts actually do not make you stronger whatsoever. So squatting heavy weight doesn't make you stronger. Squatting heavy weight tells your body, oh shit, this guy's trying to pick up heavy stuff. We need to get stronger. And then it's actually when you sleep that your body lays down more protein and builds stronger muscles. So without shifting into that parasympathetic state, you will never actually make any fitness gains. Does that make sense? So, so yeah. you're, in, you're in the sympathetic state when you work out, you need to shift to the parasympathetic so your body can recover and rebuild itself stronger. So I, I would argue in terms of that, the parasympathetic is the most important because without it, you're, you're just destroying your body. You're never building it back up. Yeah, I interviewed a doctor a couple of weeks ago and he did his PhD all on basically the effects of sleep and athletic performance. Mm -hmm. And he did SEC football players. And yeah, he could clearly show like, okay, one night, fine, not a big deal. But two, mm -hmm. three, four nights, mm -hmm. their performance drastically started to decline if they weren't getting mm -hmm. seven and a half to nine hours of sleep. Yep. It was all about essentially the body rebuilding itself and growing over time. That's exactly right. It's, um, it's honestly crazy the extent of, of what happens when you're sleeping. It's not just your muscle, your, your muscle tissues getting stronger. That's actually when your brain learns things. So, you know, you might go to a jujitsu class, you learn a new move, you practice a few reps of it. Your brain's trying to hold on to that information. It's when you're actually asleep that it integrates that. And it, it's kind of like pressing save on the file and it files that away in your memory and it makes it a permanent part of your brain. Those, um, it's, it's like a neuroplastic change. So a change in the neurons in your brain only occurs when you're sleeping. So we've been talking, you know, parasympathetic and it kind of, the lines between rest recovery are, are somewhat blurred, mm -hmm. right? Um, you know, first thing is how much should we be doing of either? Mm. Well, it, it, I guess it depends on how you define it. Cause I look at recovery as a holistic kind of picture of the state that your body is in. So I use the, the, the whoop strap. Um, it's becoming kind of more popular to look at the state of your body. So, you know, one day you can be more recovered than, than the next day. And that just comes down to, again, like which, which branch of your nervous system is running the show right now? Is it the somatic system or I'm sorry, is it the sympathetic system or the parasympathetic system? So your question of like, how much should you be doing of either? It's hard to answer. I would say, you know, there's, there's guidelines on how much physical activity we should get. I'd say training for like one to two hours a day, five to six days a week is a good good thing to shoot for and then you should be recovering the entire rest of the day as it comes to your hydration your nutrition you know what are you putting in your body are you staring at your phone before bed or are you reading a book that helps your brain shut off you know are you watching kardashians on tv or are you you know doing some sort of practice that helps your brain wind down you know are you meditating are you not meditating so recovery is really everything you're doing for the other 22 hours out of the day when you're not training. All right. So kind of on the same lines as recovery. Yes. Right. You should be kind of winding your brain down, getting the right nutrients in your body, that sort of thing. Um, what are other things we should be doing? Like should we do ice baths, sauna, red light therapy, mm -hmm. tens machines, those kinds mm -hmm. of things. Yeah. I heard you talking about this on another one of your, your interviews. Um, I'm a big fan of the cold exposure not even for the muscle recovery or any inflammation, things like that, but just for the mental side of it. And um, I, I forget the name of the gentleman you were interviewing, but he talked about in the ice bath, you want to sit in there until you get that shift where you 
calm down your breathing and control your breathing. And that is the exact thing that's happening is you're shifting from the sympathetic response, right? You hit the cold water and there's fight or flight. You're like, oh crap, I don't like this. And then you can make that shift and calm down and you can train your brain to get better at making that shift quicker. Um, So there's one thing with the ice baths, but I just like cold exposure in general for like the mental toughness aspect of it. Um, But back to your question of what else can you be doing? I think meditation is, is probably the number one tool that most people can add to their daily routine to, to have the biggest difference. Just because this world that we live in, it's like, we're all so distractible. I think everyone's attention span, especially this year has just gotten, gotten worse. <laughs> you know, it's all TikTok videos, Instagram reels. We only have a 10 second attention span and it's always bouncing from one stimulus to the next, right? Like going from one app to the other, one video to the next. So anytime that you can cultivate some stillness in your life to just slow down and actually become present in your surroundings in the present moment, I think that is, um, it sounds kind of like new agey and out there, but I, I think that's one of the biggest things that people can do to make a change in, in their life. Yeah, I mean, and realistically, the mind controls the rest of the body, right? So if you can get right, this yeah. thing under under control and you can figure out, okay, what the hell am I doing? It, flows to the rest and everything else works a little bit better for sure that's exactly right man and it gets back to that toggling from one state to the next meditation is a very powerful way to shift yourself into that parasympathetic state even if it's only for 10 minutes and then you come back out of it you're still better for having trained that that shift so i've talked to a couple of people and i've read a bunch of stuff and they talk about you know active days versus kind of active recovery days versus rest Mm -hmm. days Mm mm-hmm what do you think, I think you said five to six days a week, you know, lifting, doing jujitsu, and then maybe one or two days kind mm-hmm. of doing that. From the body health perspective, how should we break that up? Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's a good question. The way that I program things for my clients is generally speaking, they'll have one like moderate intensity day, followed by a very high intensity day, followed by a very low intensity day. So there's the moderate intensity of just kind of, you know, getting your work in. There's the high intensity to really push yourself and really drive those adaptations. Like we talked about before, you don't actually get better from the workout. You get better from recovering from the workout. So after that intense day, we have typically what I'll call an active recovery day where, you know, maybe they have some rehab movements that they need to work on, like more of the actual traditional physical therapy kind of stuff. So that's pretty low intensity. So we fit that in on those days. Mobility work is generally low intensity. So like active stretching, active mobility, kind of stuff like that. And then if there's any skill development stuff that they're working on, which isn't going to really tax their body so much, but maybe it's taxing their brain to be able to to keep up with it more. That's a good thing to fit in on that day also. So that's a, a pretty good structure, like moderate intensity, high intensity, low intensity, and just keep repeating that. I like to throw in maybe one day a week where you're doing something totally different again, just to like shift that brain state. So for myself, I, I try to get out and hike once a week. I'll go for a bike ride a couple of days a week, just anything to kind of um, break whatever pattern that you're in, just so your training doesn't feel super stale, you know? Yeah, no, that makes sense. And so my next question is, I, it's something I definitely struggle with and mm-hmm. it's how do I know, all right, I'm kind of beat up. And so I should probably tone it down a little bit mm-hmm. versus yeah. all right, I'm just being a pussy and I need to kind of push through. <laughs> mm-hmm. Like, how do you balance those two? I tend to go with, all right, just suck it up and do it. But mm-hmm. I know that's probably not the best for my body. <laughs> it's probably not the best if that's always what you do. 
Um, I don't mean to turn this into a whoop commercial, but but that thing really is key for knowing that because it'll it gives you very good data on what state your body is in, right? So if I wake up feeling kind of tired, but the strap says that like my body's good to go, that's how you know, okay, you're just being a bitch. You should push through this. Versus if you wake up and you're kind of tired and the strap says, you know, your heart rate was terrible when you slept, your breathing rate was higher than usual, and your heart rate variability is lower than usual. That's when you say, okay, my body you know, I need to listen to this today. I need to actually scale it back. I think uh, Jocko has a rule of thumb that like, if he doesn't want to do something, he still does it that day. And the Correct. next day, if he, if he still doesn't want to do it the next day, that's when he rests. I think for most people, that's probably a good rule of thumb. I All think, right. uh, I think the average person probably isn't overtraining too, too hard. So I think that's a good rule of thumb. All right. So if you feel like you're being a bitch one day, just suck it up day two. All right. Yes. You're not being a bitch. Yes. I'll amend that. I'll, we'll put an asterisk there if you're actually having like acute pain or like an acute injury. But if you just don't feel like doing your workout, you suck it up, do your workout. <laughs> <laughs> All right. That makes sense. All right. So I know something else you kind of talk about is if your warm up takes more than 10 minutes, you're probably <laughs> yes. doing it wrong. And yes. This is super helpful because when you go to a competition, as you probably know, you hang out for a while, they're Brazilian, so they're always behind schedule. <laughs> and right, so you're sitting in the bullpen, you're trying to get ready, you warm up, and then you're like, well, shit, now I got 30 minutes. Mm -hmm. How do I, how do I kind mm -hmm. of structure getting ready? So mm -hmm. how do you get ready to go in less than 10 minutes? Yeah, the, the real question is, what training can we do to make your body ready to go at all times? So it's not how can we warm up faster, it's what can we do so that you don't need that warm up? Does that make sense? So, yeah. so it's, it's not like, oh shit, I have to go squat today. I got a foam roll for half an hour. It's not, how can we foam roll better? It's not, what can I do right before I squat to, to warm myself up quicker? It's why do you need that warm up? What's wrong with your ankle mobility or your hip mobility that you need to spend 20 minutes working on it before you do a movement? Can we get you to a place where your body is just always feeling pretty good? Um, because again, I, I take a real like uh, evolutionary biology standpoint kind of view on things. If our ancestors saw a tiger, they didn't say, hold up, let me foam roll for 10 minutes before I run away from you. You know, they just needed to go. And again, that gets to, to switching from one state to the other. The, the best athletes can switch on a dime from one state to the other state. Um, so I know it's kind of a cop-out answer. It's not, it's not a real answer, but that is, that's the truth is, um, is what can we do in your training to, to make your body kind of feel good all the time so you don't need that warm-up. When you, when you start talking about competition, that's a little different because you got the nerves and the adrenaline going. Um, I, I've only competed once so far, and yeah, that was, that was terrible. Just feeling like so nervous, felt like I was going to throw up, and then I had to sit there for another 20 minutes and waiting for my name to get called. That was weird. Um, but there's, there's my answer in terms of the actual body function is how can we get your training to a point that you don't need to do that extended warm up to feel good. So are there specific things we can do? Like, I'm going to give a terrible example, but mm -hmm. all right, like, let's say, all right, I'm at a dead stop. I haven't done anything. Now I'm going to go and do sprints. <laughs> is that a good way to train it? Or you, you get what I'm, I'm kind of saying? Like, how do you mm -hmm. turn your body on like that? Mm -hmm. Yeah. So it's, um, it's kind of long-term progressive mobility training and strength training. So no, I would not tell you just go practice going from nothing to running sprints. <laughs> but I would say, um, you know, can we practice your hamstring explosiveness in the gym? 
so that you can go from nothing to doing an explosive hamstring curl without hurting yourself. Can we do some plyometrics for your calves so that your, your tendons and all the tissues are resilient enough to just all of a sudden jump like that? So no, don't go practice doing cold sprints right away. <laughs> but those kinds of things, like what variables can we tweak in your workouts to, to build that resiliency of your body? Okay, so more ex explosive kind of movements, like let's say uh, a seated squat, where basically I got, the, I got it on my back, I'm gonna sit for two seconds and then I'm gonna explode back up, like those kinds of things? Well, that was, sorry, that was like for your sprinting example. So I think the real, uh, a real good way to build this quality is those long isometrics that I was talking about. Okay. Because what an isometric contraction is gonna do for you is, is a few things. For one thing, it's really good to drive adaptation in your tendons and in your connective tissue. So if, if you look at a lot of athletes, like what injuries do pro athletes get, like hamstring tears, things like that, it's because the connective tissue is not as strong as it needs to be. So if you're only ever doing heavy squats, your muscle's going to get stronger, but the connective tissue is not going to get as much stronger. So the isometrics are great for that. They're also good. I, I mentioned before that like minute long isometric hold. So what happens when you're doing that is the muscle fibers that you normally use, they get fatigued really quickly. So now your body's pulling these reserve muscle fibers into the picture that normally your training might not touch. So if you're only doing sets of eight to 10 reps on a squat, you're maybe training like half of your potential muscle fibers. So they're going to get stronger, but you're leaving a lot out of the picture. So those like minute long isometrics start recruiting everything that your body has to bring to bear to that movement. So it, it helps to lower the threshold at which the rest of your muscles get into play. So now when you go to do that sprint, your body can all of a sudden turn on and recruit everything that it has to, to bring that to support you in that movement. Does that, am I making sense with that? Yeah, no, it's it generally like, again, using a shitty analogy, but if I'm going to go run, part of the reason why I pop a handstring is because the the part of the hamstring that attaches to my bones isn't as strong. By doing isometric holds, I'm strengthening those connections. Yes, pieces. exactly. And so normally, you know, someone will do a 20-minute warm-up to get the blood flowing, to get those muscles engaged, to get those tendons kind of waking up, to, to wake up that connection from the brain to the muscle, versus if you're normally training those isometrics and those mobility things, you know, you don't need 20 minutes to wake up those muscles because your brain has better access to them because you've trained that access to the muscle. Yeah. Okay. That totally makes sense. All right. So I have a totally selfish question now. <laughs> Go for All it. All right. So a couple, let's call it like a month and a half ago, somewhere in the neighborhood. Mm -hmm. So I bought a new pair of shoes and okay. they were like kind of mesh-ish. Okay. And I walked around for a couple of days and I noticed my foot was sliding off the inside. I was like, yeah. So I was like, all right, maybe it's just because they're like squishy shoes. So then I bought like more rigid shoes and I had the same sort of issue. Mm -hmm. So then I, I did my YouTube doctoring, <laughs> right? And, and it's, so I got, uh, so then I got like some inserts that kind of flattened my foot out a little bit, but now huh. my knee twists in a little. Yes. So what the hell is wrong with me? <laughs> I think generally um you know have, have you spent any time in the past training your foot muscles like training your arch no okay did you even know that was a thing that was possible 
uh, I, I assumed it was possible, but I've honestly never done it. <laughs> okay. This is actually like one of my favorite topics because I broke my foot twice in college. So I've been through this whole rehab process with foot surgery and everything. So your foot has four distinct layers of muscles in it, and their job is to create the arch of your foot and to maintain it and create stability as your foot hits the ground. So again, the quick fix is to throw an orthotic in your shoe that basically does the job for it. It's like putting a cast on your arm. It's holding it in one rigid position, which can be helpful. Like maybe it alleviates your pain in the short term, or maybe it makes you feel better in the short term, but we're taking away your body's ability to do that on its own. So I would say, you know, with the shoes, it can be an actual shoe problem where your foot's like falling over the inside of the shoe if, if it's too narrow for you or something like that. But I think the long-term answer is to learn how to create an arch with the muscles in your foot, learn how to maintain it, learn how to use the muscles of your hip to kind of keep your knee in a, in a good position over top of that arch. So it's, it's a lot of training your body to, to do the things that it was evolved to do. Um, again, I, I keep harping back on this, but it really is the answer to so many things. Like humans have been running for 10,000 years, right? That's how, we, that's how we hunted back in the day is we just outran animals. We didn't have Nike running shoes back then, man. Our bodies are designed to do it on their own, but we live in a world where, you know, we're never barefoot. So your foot is never interacting with the ground. Your brain never learns what it should feel like. Um, we're, we're putting shoes from the time that we're like six months old. So it's almost like the Chinese foot binding stuff where our foot grows to, to fit the mold of the shoes that we're put into. Mm -hmm. Okay. So what should I do? Like, should mm -hmm. I just like YouTube a bunch of like arch exercises? <laughs> so actually uh, shameless plug here on my Instagram, I went into a few like in-depth videos on this stuff. Um, so I've got a couple of videos on how to restore like some of the mobility and flexibility in your foot and in your toes, how to create that arch. Um, but yeah, there's, there's a bunch of like foot strengthening things and then a lot of like single leg stability work. So like single leg squats, single leg deadlifts, lateral lunges, all while maintaining that arch. So I would say start, start lifting weights barefoot. So okay. you actually, you know, don't drop weight on your toes or anything, but that way your brain starts to, um, it starts to incorporate that, you know, when you're wearing like cushioned running shoes, your brain is getting no input from the ground. It's getting no input from what your foot is actually doing. It would be like trying to, trying to use a screwdriver with like winter gloves on, you know? So the, the, actually the, the bottom of your shoe of your foot and the palm of your hand have almost the same number of nerve endings in them. So your brain should be getting a ton of information from your foot about what's going on down there. But when we wear these like freaking pillows on your shoes, it robs your brain of all that information. And so now you, you put on these shoes and your foot's falling over the inside of it and your brain doesn't know how the hell to fix it because it has no interaction with all of those little tiny muscles inside your foot that should be doing that job. Okay, that totally makes sense. All right. So I know you do a bunch of mobility work too, right? Mm -hmm. So the first question is, I know it's important, but why is it important for jujitsu? Mm -hmm. Yeah, so this goes back to that like uh, folding clothes involuntarily thing. So if someone, um, <clears throat> let's, let's look at like uh, Kimura for, or, or an Americana rather, for example. So someone's trying to basically externally rotate your arm more than it can possibly go. So no amount of mobility work is going to stop you from getting submitted with an Americana. But it can make the difference between 
you know, your opponent accidentally ripping apart your shoulder because it came on too fast versus you actually having time to work from that position and you tapping on your own terms instead of tapping all of a sudden as soon as it comes on. So it's like your opponent is constantly attacking your joints. Jiu-jitsu submissions are all about taking your joint to the limits of what the, uh, what the ligaments and what the tendons can do and then exceeding that to, to destroy your joints essentially. Sure. So mobility work is really good at, at uh, expanding that envelope of what your joints are capable of doing so that now when someone puts on a submission, it's going to the edge of what's comfortable instead of smashing right through that into something that would hurt you, you know? So the mobility work helps to expand what your joint is capable of, and it also helps to improve the resiliency, the strength of all of that connective tissue in the joint. So that, you know, after you drill Americanas all night, your arm isn't so sore the next day because those tendons and those, you know, the little rotator cuff muscles, they're used to that kind of positioning and they can actually create force and, and work from that position. All right. So how do we, how do we help it? Like, let's just, mm -hmm. you already said in Americana, right? Mm -hmm. Is it rotations like this, like mm -hmm. weighted? Like how do we, how do we Yours is actually, that? yours is actually pretty good there. So this is where the functional range conditioning guys are really good with this stuff. So there's probably, you know, two main like interventions that I would use. So one is called positional isometrics. So positional meaning, you know, we're working at a specific angle and the isometrics, like we talked about before, is basically pushing and holding it for a period of time. So you can do this on your own. You know, you can lay on your back, get into that position like you're getting Americana. And so let's say you're laying on your back. You could try to drive like the back of your, the back of your hand into the ground and hold that or like go up against a wall, push your hand back into the wall. So now I'm, I'm using my rotator cuff in that position that is compromised, you know, in that position where someone's attacking me from. So that applies to hips, to knees also. Um, they're just basically training the joints to be able to move in and out of the positions that they are attacked in. Um, one other big thing for the shoulder is just any sort of rotator cuff work uh, with a kettlebell is really good. So the rotator cuff, it moves your arm. In, in and out, but it also stabilizes that joint. You know, it, it creates stability between your shoulder blade and your arm. So training unstable things like a, a kettlebell press or a kettlebell holds overhead is a really great way to strengthen the rotator cuff in kind of a, a functional way. And that's what I'm saying when I talk about increasing the strength and the, the resiliency of the tissues in that joint. So I played baseball in college and this was back mm -hmm. in the early 2000s and we did a lot of rotator cuff stuff, but it was with mm -hmm. bands. Mm -hmm. And I've heard kind of both sides of it where bands are really good for kind of building that rotational strength. And also it's terrible for you because it's hard this way and then it kind of snaps back that way. Um, I think they can be good to isolate things like that. So like for a pitcher, you know, it's, it's really isolating that one movement. So it's good in that sense, but it's also bad in that sense, which is that you know, on the mats, nothing happens in isolation, so to speak. Like, yes, they're isolating your joint to attack it, but you know, you're moving your entire body or you're trying to push off of your opponent. So, so they're, they're good to target it very specifically, but because of that, it lacks some application to, to what you're actually doing with your arm. And that's where the kettlebell things come in because it, it does a much better job of mimicking the actual demands of the real world versus just sitting there and pushing against a TheraBand for 20 minutes. So it's, it's 
using a rotator cut, but it's also pulling in like, let's say my traps or mm-hmm. a bit of my laps or that kind of yep. thing, because I have yep. to stabilize that unstable yes, weight. Exactly. It's also pulling in a lot of core depending on how you're doing it. So something like a Turkish getup is teaching you how to integrate force from your foot through your abs, through your shoulder into your hand. So a rotor, I'm sorry, a, a band exercise is targeting one muscle. It's targeting it really well, but it's targeting one muscle. A kettlebell is targeting your entire body and how your brain can coordinate your body to support that joint. Okay. All right. So like I said before, I think you have your own kind of specialized PT practice that's just helping grapplers. How do you, how do you work with the guys that come to you? Yeah. So, so like the actual process that I, I take them through. Yeah. Um, yeah, we do, we do remote sessions. So I work with people all over the world. I actually have a client now in Sweden, which is pretty cool. Um, so that was one good thing that came out of the pandemic is everyone's used to the remote stuff nowadays. So I get, I get to help people from Sweden, which is awesome. Um, so we do remote sessions and then it's focused on teaching them these foundational movements. And a lot of it is the stuff that I learned from that guy, Jason Park. It's really revolutionized what I do with these people taking them through these kettlebell movements, these really foundational strength training things. And then I create a program for them. So they follow along like through an app on their phone. So I'm, you know, checking their progress all through the week. So I teach them these movements on the, on the video sessions, and then they practice it on their own for a couple weeks and then come back and teach them the next progression of it and, you know, message back and forth. So if they're training and something comes up where they hurt themselves, I kind of coach them through dealing with that on their own coach them through like, all right, what can we do to modify your work day now so that you're not aggravating your knee at work? How can we, you know, get you sleeping better, eating better to support all of those things that we talked about before? So it's, it's pretty cool. It's, it's allowing me to, I think, have a, a pretty big impact on these people's lives, a lot more than I did at the uh, traditional PT clinic that I used to work at. So it's been a lot of fun. So you just mentioned something and I, I just thought of it, it popped in my head. So Zoom neck is a new thing <laughs> and it's a real thing. Cause like, I know I felt it like right up here. I'm like, mm-hmm. all right, how do we, how do we either prevent or fix Zoom neck once we have it? All right. So this, to talk about this, we're getting into a big picture conversation about posture, right? Cause that's what this comes down to. And you'll see people talking about like text neck and shit like that. I hate this argument because in my eyes, there's no such thing as a good posture or a perfect posture. We just need variability in the posture. So the problem is not bending forward and looking at your phone or looking at the screen. The problem is doing that for eight hours a day. So it's the same as anything else. Like a standing desk is not better than a sitting desk if you're going to stand there for eight hours and not move. So worry, worry less about the setup of your workstation or how much time you, or, 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 you know, worry less about the position you're in, worry more about moving out of that position, worry more about doing different things throughout the day, breaking that up. So you're not sitting there staring at the screen for eight hours. I'm pretty sure like when newspapers first came out, people were worried that people were going to get neck injuries from staring at the newspaper the whole time. So the, the arguments have been around forever, but they're, I don't, I don't think that's a true one. It's, it's the same concept, whether you're sitting like this reading newspaper or you're kind of sitting slumped over and looking at Zoom. Exactly. So worry, worry less about the actual position you're in. Worry more about just moving. You know, get out of that position. Take a break every few minutes. Stretch. Move around. Things like that. All right. So for those of us that have 
injuries, aches, pains, which is basically everybody that does jujitsu. Mm-hmm. How do we, how do we connect with you? Yeah. So best place is probably Instagram at D Zwoboda. Um, my website is uh, groundgamephysio.com. Um, yeah, those are, those are probably the best ways for now. And then you have like an intake questionnaire or something too, right? That you can sort of fill out. Is that right? Oh, it's uh, so yeah, on my Instagram, there's a link to um, just like a little document I put together on improving your hip mobility. So if the kinds of things that we talked about today resonated with you, you can go check that out. And um, I think I show you like three exercises to do to work on hip mobility and get into a little bit of the philosophy behind like how to train it and why it's important. So it's a good thing to check out if people are interested in the kind of philosophy stuff we've been talking about and you want to see a little taste of, of how I work with people. Um, and it's directly applicable to escapes and submissions and things like that. So I kind of go through showing how that training applies right to the math. So I'm pretty proud of how it looks. So go check no, it out. <laughs> it definitely looks cool. So I, uh, I definitely appreciate you coming on. And uh, I want to give people kind of, if you could give them, let's say three things like, hey, you will hurt less if you do this while you're training mm-hmm. jiu-jitsu. What would those three things be? While you're training jujitsu, because I was going to say, let's just say in general, so your body yeah, doesn't yeah, yeah. hurt all the time. What should you yeah. do with yourself? General rules of thumb is nutrition is so important. We didn't dive into it too too much, but if you're eating processed crap, if you're eating a lot of sugar, your body's going to feel like shit. So ask yourself, like, are you eating real food? You know, look at the foods that you're eating. Do they have a laundry list of ingredients, or are you eating the actual base ingredient itself? You know. So that's, that's number one. Are you eating food or are you eating processed chemicals? Number two would be, are you sleeping enough? People always want to work harder. They always want to do more cardio, stuff like that. Like we talked about before, your workouts mean nothing if you're not recovering from them. So how much are you sleeping? Is it quality sleep? And then I'm even going to double down on the sleep thing. <laughs> number three is going to be, are you setting yourself up to sleep well? So what are you doing in the two hours before bed? You know, are you staring at your phone? So you're getting the blue light, which blocks melatonin. It's engaging your brain. Or are you meditating or reading or doing something like that to help your body unwind, to shift from that sympathetic state to that parasympathetic state so that you can set yourself up for success tomorrow? Because your next training session is only ever going to be as good as you recovered from your last one. So eat real food, sleep better, and sleep better again. <laughs> there you go. From the physical therapist that teaches people how to use their bodies correctly, his advice has nothing to do with treating your body correctly except <laughs> eat right and then basically get enough sleep and set yourself up to sleep. That's right, man. Those, those are really like the, the low-hanging fruit things to start changing and your body's going to feel great. Awesome. Well, David, I really appreciate you coming on, man. Thank you very much. Yeah, dude. Absolutely. I hope this, uh, this helps some people out there make some, some positive changes, you know?